Welcome everybody to Neurological Deep Dive. I am your host, Ferret Fawns. Today we have an interesting topic. How have you seen God's mercy and justice? What about God's mercy and justice? Do you think it's real? Do you believe that it's out there? Have you experienced it in your own lives and in your own situations? Does your trials and tribulations come out with God's mercy and justice? Well, today we're going to talk about it with Dawn in the Gospel Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This has been Neurological Deep Dive Podcast. Dawn, take it away. Thank you for that introduction there, Fawns. So here's the topic of today, God's justice and mercy. What is justice? Justice is an essential element of benevolence. In other words, it's an attribute of benevolence. And the word benevolence means love, and it means goodwill. It means to will the good of. Justice means the quality of being just, righteous, fair, equitable, or morally right. It means conformity to the moral or conformity to moral principle in conduct, in dealing, or in treatment. Justice involves the repayment of what is deserved as by punishment or reward. It is the preservation of law as by judicial or other proceedings. To do justice to means to render what is due to a person. It means to treat or judge fairly. The Holy Scriptures reveal that God is always just in all his dealings with all his creatures. One branch of divine justice consists in always doing that which is right, equitable, and proper under the circumstances. This has been called general justice, or we could call it public justice. Another branch of divine justice is judicial justice, meaning God rewards the obedient and he punishes the guilty. This has been called remunerative justice or punitive justice. God will never set aside general justice or public justice, meaning his sense of what is right and fit under the circumstances, to extend mercy or to forgive sin. God will never violate general justice or public justice to extend forgiveness, because to do so would make him less than just and less than benevolent. God can and does forgive sin if or when the conditions are suitable and proper for it. And we see that in 1 John 1.9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can see in this verse that it is sometimes just to forgive sin but it is just to forgive sin only when the conditions are suitable for it, like if there is confession of sin. So God will only suspend the penalty of the broken law if it does not violate his sense of right, or if it does not weaken the force of moral law, 
or if it does not harm his just administration over the universe. So here are some verses declaring that God is just. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says this, quote, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and righteous is he. Another verse is in Psalm 89 verse 14. It says this, quote, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Another place is in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, and it calls Jesus the just one. So Jesus is called the just one in this place. Another verse is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, quote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold means hinder or hold back. They hold back the truth in unrighteousness. But here you see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That is justice. But we are, here's another quote from Romans chapter 2, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Another verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 11, it says this, God will render to every man according to his deeds. And then he says later on in verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. These are all verses that show that God is just and that he is righteous. And you could also say it proves that God is holy. Here's another verse. In Romans chapter 3, verse 27, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And lastly, the other verse, and I already quoted it, quote, it's in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can see here that God, in his justice, must punish sin and must punish sinners who go on in their sin. So in hell, there will be no injustice. Everyone who goes to hell will go there and be suffering there because of God's justice. So that's a definition of justice. Now let's ask ourselves this question. What is mercy? Mercy is also an essential element of benevolence. In other words, and by the, word, the, by the way, the word benevolence, it really means that God wills the well-being of everyone. Or could we say the well-being of his universe? That's benevolence. It's it really means goodwill or to will the good of. So mercy means, quote, I'm quoting Webster here, that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. It's the disposition 
that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries, end quote. That's from Noah Webster, 1828 Dictionary. A merciful, uh, by the way, when I say, uh, when he says it's the disposition that tempers justice, justice, that means it moderates or modifies justice. A merciful being is disposed to pity offenders and to forgive their offenses. Mercifulness means, quote, willing to forbear punishment, readiness to forgive. That's according to Noah Webster. Now that word forbear means abstain from. So mercifulness is a willingness to abstain from punishment. It's a, it's a readiness to forgive. Mercy consists in setting aside the penalty of law when the law has been violated. Mercy presupposes guilt. For without guilt, there is no need for mercy. So here are some verses from the Bible declaring that God is merciful. This is Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. And I quote, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. End quote. Here's another verse. It's in Micah, Old Testament. Uh, it says this, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. So we can see, I've been quoting from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. So a lot of Old Testament passages show that God is just and merciful. And is the same in the New Testament. It shows that God is just and God is also merciful. So God did not change in the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there was always, God was always merciful. And he is, especially today. Now, God is ready to forgive sin. And he's ready to pardon sin. And those are, quote, uh, ready to forgive is found in Psalm 86.5. Look it up for yourself and you'll see that God is ready to forgive. And then in Nehemiah, Old Testament again, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, God said he's ready to pardon. So God is ready to forgive and ready to pardon. But this readiness will never set aside his requirement for general justice or public justice to be satisfied. God is willing to absolve sins, but he will not undermine the authority of his laws harm the public interest, or give up his right to rule in justice and love. The process of extending forgiveness to convicted criminals is a delicate and critical matter. God wants to extend mercy to sinners, but his justice and goodness require him to support his laws and his honor and the public good. 
the upholding of his honor and the upholding of his laws is essential for promoting the well-being of the universe. So you can see that justice is an element, an essential element of goodwill, but so is mercy. And both of them are important in order to have good government. Although ready and willing to pardon sin, God will not arbitrarily, indiscriminately, or always do so, because that would harm his kingdom, and that would undermine his gracious laws. The following verses that I'm going to read will show that God does not recklessly pardon sin, and he definitely does not unconditionally pardon sin. And I'm reading now in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 21. It says this, Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. And uh, he's speaking of the angel. The angel of God will not pardon his transgression, really, which would probably be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. So the angel spoke and, and he said, he will not pardon your transgression. So you could see that there, that God sometimes does not pardon. Now I want to go to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15 you'll see another place where God does not always pardon. He says um, in Matthew 6, 14, it says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So can you see here that... Um, that God does not always forgive. In John chapter 3, verse 36, we read this, the Gospel of John. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's forgiveness. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's, that means there is no forgiveness. If God's wrath is abiding on us, that means we're not in his favor and we're not experiencing his mercy. So you see how God does not always forgive. He only forgives when the conditions are suitable for it, and when it's good for his government, and when it's uh, good for his honor. God will never dishonor himself in order to let us go free and, and not be punished. So you can see that in those verses. Now here's another one in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 it says this he that covers his sins shall not prosper but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy so you see how there are conditions to God's showing mercy we've got to meet the conditions so there are times in fact anytime anybody sins and does not repent or does not believe in Christ and does not uh, give his life to God. Anytime we sin and don't do that, God will not forgive us. So, next topic is this. God maintains justice in extending 
mercy. God, quote, is a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. That's what God says. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, it says God is a just God, there's the justice, and a savior, there's the mercy. There is only one true God, and this one true God is both just and a savior. From what does he save? Well, he saves from sin and from hell and damnation. And he also, he, you could say he saves from sinning and from the penalty of past sins. That's what he saves us from, from present sin and from past sin, and, or should I say the penalty of our past sins. So God is both just and merciful. He is both angry with the wicked every day, and you can see that in Psalm chapter 7, Psalm 7, verse 11. And God is also willing to forgive sin before judgment day. That's the key. God cannot forgive you on judgment day. The time to get forgiveness is before your day in his court. And that day is coming because the Bible says after death comes judgment. And that's written in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. So God is both just and the justifier of them which believe in his son. And you can find that in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. God is a justifier in the sense that he can justify all who turn from their sins and receive Christ as supreme Lord. Now, what does that mean, justifier? God is a justifier. He can justify us. What does that mean to justify us? It means to pardon us. It means to accept us as just. Or it means to treat us as though we have not sinned, even though we have sinned. That's called forgiveness. It's called pardon. So God is both just and he's the justifier. That means he's both just and he's merciful. He's holy and he is forgiving. But he will not forgive everyone, nor will he forgive always. He does not grant unqualified or unconditional forgiveness. Pe preachers who teach that are teaching something that's not true. He does not unconditionally forgive us. And he does not forgive us before we have committed our sins. Some people say that once you believe in Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Or they're under the blood and covered in a sense. Well, that's not true. Our future sins have not even been committed yet. So how can God forgive us when we have not even committed the sin? So in order for God to forgive us, there must first be something to forgive, which would be a sin. So this idea that God forgives our sins that we're going to commit next week or next year is quite preposterous. It's not biblical. You don't know if you're going to repent of your sins that you're going to commit next week. Now, God knows that, but pre-forgiveness is not something that we get when we turn our lives to Christ. 
we, when we believe in Christ and convert and become his followers, we are forgiven at that time of all past sins. So in order to be forgiven, there must be repentance. So for him, for God, to forgive a person who has sinned, some obstacles need to be removed and some conditions need to be fulfilled. Now, I want to ask this question. How do good civil governments exercise mercy? Well, let me give you a scenario. Suppose you happen to be driving 30 miles over the speed limit. You pass a police car. You decide to evade the police officer by making turns on side streets and by speeding even more. You now see in the distance the blue lights flashing in your rear view mirror. Due to your fear and excitement and recklessness, you crash into someone's car that is parked in their driveway. You are now in deep, deep trouble with the law. What must you do to get right with your neighbor whose car you crashed, you crashed into? And what must you do to, um, to get right with your local government and the community whose laws you broke. So here are some things you must do to get right with your neighbor and with your community. Number one, you must first acknowledge you're wrong and make no excuses for it. You must plead guilty before everyone. Number two, you must repent in your heart and that, by that I mean you must intend never to commit another crime again. And you must express your sorrow and your change of heart both to your neighbor and to your government, the, the local government, because you've injured them both. You must pay for the damaged car to get repaired or replaced. And this you could call partial restitution. You must do that. But you must also make full restitution. You must... Uh, make full restitution by paying or doing something extra to compensate for the inconvenience you caused both to your neighbor and to the municipality, to the community. So you've got to make restitution. Let us suppose the court requires you to make full restitution, to pay a fine, and to go to jail for two months. Suppose the court also suspends your driver's license until all previous conditions are fulfilled. Now, a refusal to meet any one of these requirements or these conditions would mean no driver's license and no favor restored. You will continue to be out of favor with your government or your community until all the terms are met. Your government will see you and treat you as a criminal until you get things right. In other words, they will not forgive you of your crimes until you get these things right. They will not extend mercy to you until you get these things right. The civil government will not forgive you of your crimes or accept you as innocent until you meet all the above conditions and remove all the obstacles that hinder you from being in good standing with your government, your community, and that neighbor whose car are you damaged? This is how justice and mercy work together. All governments are required by God 
to be both just and merciful, both fair and forgiving in all their dealings. So if our politicians would read the Bible, maybe they'd learn how to govern a nation, but they ignore the Bible, and that, that's why our nation is in the hands of devil worshipers and uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and a lot of bad actors. And um, so our government needs to start opening that Bible and learning about these things. So, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. How does God's government exercise mercy? Well, the same basic principles apply. Good government on earth is simply that which conforms to the scriptures. In the degree to which civil governments follow God's principles of justice and mercy, that is the degree to which that society, that country will be blessed, free, and prosperous. The punishment, though, for violating God's government is much more severe than for violating human governments. The punishment for violating God's law is everlasting misery. The penalty of sin is to be excluded from heaven and cast into hellfire forever and ever. That is justice. That's what every sinner deserves. God is just. He is clothed with authority to punish souls with eternal death and perdition. And you can read it for yourself. And I'm going to read a few verses. You see the concept of hell and punishment found in the Old Testament. And I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given him. Notice it says it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Um, we think sometimes that bad people are getting away with their crimes. Well, they're not. And it seems like God is just so long-suffering with all these criminals that have been sinning and doing dastardly deeds for 40 years and 50 years and 60 years. And it seems like there's no justice. Well, just remember this. A day uh, with the Lord is like a thousand years to us and a thousand years like a day. So we think God is prolonging justice. To us, 70 years is a long time. But to God, it's like a minute. So, you know, when you see these criminals doing bad things, you say, boy, they don't get justice. They're, look at them, they're running free and they're happy and whatever. Well, God is just saying to us basically, wait a minute, wait a minute, because justice will come. To God, uh, a thousand years is like a day. So you could probably say, an, you know, 10 years is like a few minutes. So that's important to know that justice will be done on this earth. Now, that's one verse that says that it shall be ill with those that do wrong. And in, in Daniel, it says in Daniel, uh, for ma uh, many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That means they will have everlasting shame. 
Well, you can't have everlasting shame if you don't have everlasting existence. So the concept of an everlasting hell was definitely taught in the Old Testament. Now, there's, I just mentioned two verses. There's a lot more that could be mentioned. But uh, the concept of hell was very, very clearly mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus especially. Isn't that interesting? The one, the most loving person on earth who lived on this earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one spoke of hell more than him that I'm aware of. Uh, the other one who spoke a lot about hell and damnation and hellfire and the furnace of fire and things like that, the lake of fire, would be the Apostle John who was probably one of the closest, if not the closest, apostle to the Lord Jesus. So some of the two most Christ-like people, well, Christ being one of them, spoke more of hell than anybody else that I'm aware of in the Bible. And it's everywhere in the Bible. I'm just going to quote you uh, one verse. It's in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. It says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, but if we follow the devil, then we're going to go to the devil's hell. And so here it's people that are being cast into everlasting fire. And then it says, and these, later on in verse 46, it says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Well, how do you have everlasting punishment if you don't have everlasting existence? So hell is not a loss of being but it is a loss of well-being. It is a state of misery. And I've got so many verses. There's Matthew 18 talks about hell. Matthew 13 talks about hell. Uh, Luke 16, if you look at that, talks about hell. Romans chapter 2, even the Apostle Paul a lot of times mentions the wrath of God and eternal damnation and things like that. So um, hell is a real concept. And if there would be no hell and no punishment for evildoers, then there would really be no justice. So that's why you have to believe, if you believe God is just, there's going to be literal punishment for those who go against his authority. Now, this is what you call punitive justice, or retributive justice. And this kind of justice is consistent with goodwill. It's consistent with benevolence. Because think about it. What if, think of the worst person you can think of. I, I don't want to mention any names, but you probably know somebody really, really bad. What if you had to spend eternity in heaven with somebody like that who was still like that? That would be cruel. That would be very cruel. So God cannot allow sinful people in heaven because it would destroy heaven and heaven would turn into a hell. So it's only holy people, only saved and righteous people that will go to heaven. Because if there's bad people in heaven, then heaven won't be heaven. It, it won't be a good place to be in. So that's why it's uh, imperative that God uh, exercises justice if he is benevolent. 
So punitive and retributive justice is consistent with goodwill. God is far more deserving of our reverence and of our obedience than any government, local, state, or federal. If you really stop and think about it. So God's justice is without respect of persons. That is, it's without partiality. But God's forgiveness is offered and granted as a gift if, there's the word if, if certain obstacles are removed and certain conditions are fulfilled. So what obstacles need to be removed and what does God require of sinners before his sense of goodness and justice and mercy allows him to grant forgiveness. So I want to talk about a few of them. And here's one of them. And I'm going to talk extensively about this concept. So what obstacles need to be removed or what conditions need to be fulfilled? Here's number one. God absolutely requires an atonement. And you can see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 11. All the sacrifices and offerings of lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons and grain and other things mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures were required before God could forgive the sins of the people. And you can see that in Leviticus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You read those chapters in Leviticus and you will see that there needed to be a sacrifice offered before forgiveness could be extended, before mercy could be extended. Of course, these Levitical offerings were types and shadows of things to come. They were representations, you could say. They foreshadowed the coming of Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice at Calvary. And you can see all this in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to read 1 Peter here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this, verse 18. It says, For as, as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. So you see, in order to be redeemed, that means delivered from our past sins and, and delivered from sin, in order to be redeemed or saved, we absolutely need an atonement. And who provided that atonement? It was Christ. It's with his precious blood. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Here's another verse. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So Christ bear our sins on the tree. That means he bore our sins in his own body. Now, in what sense did he bear our sins? Well, he endured the effects of our sins. And, then, and hence, he gave satisfaction for our sins. So he bore a punishment that was enough to satisfy God's justice. That's what Christ did. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, you see another good verse. It says, For Christ also is once, hath once suffered for sins, 
the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And notice, Jesus was put to death in the flesh. Jesus did not ever die spiritually. And I don't have time to get into that. Jesus never died spiritually because that would mean Jesus had to be separated from his Father as far as spiritual, spiritually is concerned. And Jesus was never at one time separated spiritually from his father. The, the only separation that took place on the cross was that God, the father, removed his protective hand on his own son. And he allowed the rascals in this world to, have, to, 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 to crucify him. And uh, so that's, that's what that, that is referring to. But my point is... He died for us. Christ died for us. And he once suffered for our sins. That was at Calvary about 2,000 years ago. The just, see, Christ was just. He never sinned. For the unjust, we have all sinned. And so we need that atonement. Why? It was designed to bring us together with God. That he might bring us to God. That's called reconciliation. To bring us into agreement or into fellowship. So, what is an atonement? <clears throat> Excuse me. It is that which atones for or makes amends for an injury or a wrong. An atonement is that which makes reparation for or satisfaction for an offense committed, which makes way for forgiveness and reconciliation to occur. It is that which removes the obstacle to being forgiven of offenses. An atonement is that which serves to avert the wrath of an offended party and clears the way for hostilities to end and penalties to be suspended. An atonement is that degree of suffering, pain, or payment that serves to propitiate an offended party or an angry party. And the word propitiate is an old word. It really means to pacify, to soften his anger a little bit. A propitiation, a propitiation is that which removes the obstacles or paves the way for reconciliation. The bloody sacrifice of Christ on the cross rendered God propitious. In other words, that word propitious means disposed to be gracious and merciful. It served to make God ready and willing to forgive our sins, to give us peace with him, and to bestow blessings. Christ is called the propitiation for our sins in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. That is, he, Christ, is the atoning sacrifice offered to God which renders him willing to forgive hell-deserving sinners. The atoner of our sins had to fulfill the Old Testament types. Jesus Christ fulfilled what the Old Testament sacrifices typified. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He said that in John chapter 1, verse 29. As the sacrificed lambs were perfectly innocent in the Old Testament, 
So was Jesus. He never sinned. As the lambs died in the place of the sinner in the Old Testament, so did Jesus. That's called the substitutionary death of Christ. As the unblemished lambs sacrificed in the Old Testament by the Jews and the unblemished bulls and rams sent a sweet-smelling savor up to God, so did the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ please God. And you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. An atonement satisfies public justice, or you could say general justice. And public justice is a variation of justice. Public justice, let me give you a quote from Charles G. Finney in his lectures on systematic theology. He defines public justice, quote, public justice is a regard to the public interests and secures a due administration of law for the public good. It will in no case suffer the execution of the penalty to be set aside unless something be done to support the authority of the law and of the lawgiver. Public justice insists that the greater interests shall prevail over the lesser, end quote. So Christ's death on the cross satisfied justice, but you could say more specifically, it satisfied public justice. It was necessary to, um, for, for that to occur because um, justice would not have been satisfied. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, it, because it tended to support the law. See, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, we've all sinned. Do you want to die the death that we all deserve, which is eternal death? I don't want to. Well, Jesus died a death, not an eternal death, but a death that was enough to satisfy God. And that death of Jesus serves as a, um, a way by which God satisfied justice. And it put God the Father in a position to be able to now forgive us if we do our part. So God will not pardon sin, but upon at least two conditions. Justice must be satisfied by an atoning price, and the sinner must repent and believe the gospel. Those are the two basic conditions. Justice is tempered, or you could say moderated or qualified by mercy and cannot proceed to take vengeance if the highest good of the public or of the universe does not require it. God's justice is tempered by mercy and God's mercy is tempered by justice. And that word tempered means modified or duly mixed, properly mixed. I quote here from uh, Charles Finney. He says this, quote, Thus, these attributes mutually limit each other's exercise and render the whole character of benevolence perfect, symmetrical, and heavenly. I think that was well put. Apart from the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, all who have sinned 
would have to pay for their own sins in the fires of hell, even if they would repent. See, you can repent, you can believe Jesus, but if there would be no sacrifice of Jesus, there would be no way anybody on earth could be forgiven. That's why Christ is called the Savior of the world. There is no salvation apart from Christ. That's why Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. Hell is what all sinners deserve. However, I want this is a little side note, but it's important to know because there's a lot of people that say, ah, I'm going to hell, I know it, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just going to live it up. That's not the right attitude, I'll tell you why. Because there are degrees of torment in hell, depending upon our privileges, our opportunities to repent, depending also upon the severity of our sins, and depending also upon the amount of our sins. So the less we sin, the better. At least the better we'll have it in hell. So there are degrees of punishment in hell. That's a very important truth that is borne out in Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read it here. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24. And I'm reading. It says this. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And he's speaking of Capernaum. Capernaum was a city or a town where Jesus did many, many miracles. And with all those miracles that Jesus did, they still rejected Christ. So he says that their time of judgment will be worse. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah will have it more tolerable than these people because they were highly privileged. Here's another verse. It's in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, which, by the way, happens to be deleted from a lot of modern versions. I can see why they deleted it, because they, they don't like what it says. But uh, the real Bible says this, verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. You see, there's degrees of damnation. And then in Luke chapter 12, verse 47, I'm not going to read it, but it does say that those that have committed uh, sins knowingly have, uh, will be beaten with uh, many stripes. And those that knew not the Lord's will but did wrong will be beaten with few stripes. Um, let me get that perfectly. It's in verse 48, actually, of chapter 12 of Luke. It says, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him will they ask the more. And verse 47 says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So if you know God's will and you don't do it, you're going to be beaten with many stripes. But if you didn't know it because you didn't care to know it, well, you'll be beaten with fewer stripes. So we will be punished according to our privileges. So, and many other places, it says we will be judged according to our works. So some of these people like to use uh, 
profanity, and we've got to be careful of that because the more profanity we use, the more will be our judgment on judgment day. So the less we sin, definitely the better, even if we're not saved. Sinners will be judged by their works. They will be judged by God's truth, by God's righteous laws, not by your laws, not by my laws, but by God's righteous laws. And also you and I will be judged by the moral law laws that we knew about and by the moral laws we could have known but didn't care to know. So it is our duty to find out what God expects of us and to comply with him. Had Jesus not suffered and died on the cross for all sinners, none could be forgiven, none could be saved, none could be justified. The rejection of the Son of God, his teachings, his commandments, and his sacrifice will mean we will have to pay for our own sins on judgment day. For if God would not punish us for our sins, then he would cease to be just. He would cease to be impartial. Therefore, our sins must be forgiven and washed away before our day in God's court. No judge in any country or in any world has the right to issue pardons for crimes committed or to change just laws. God has no right to relax judicial justice on Judgment Day. He has no right to rule contrary to moral law. And God also has no right to forgive sins on Judgment Day, which is our day in court. The time to receive forgiveness is before our day in court. In other words, you, you and I ought to make sure we always settle before our day in court. Settle with God. It is no wonder that the saints in glory gladly sing about the blood and death of Christ in heaven. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 5. People in heaven are going to be singing for eternity about the precious shed blood of Christ. Why? Because that was the atoning sacrifice that removes the obstacle to our forgiveness. And everyone who is forgiven will have the Lord Jesus Christ to worship for it and does have Christ to worship for. That's why we need to start worshiping Christ now. The atonement is something that the Father did, the Son did, and the Holy Spirit did, and he did that for mankind. The Lord Jesus Christ did his part. Now, we must do our part. What does God require of us who have sinned? Well, I already mentioned one requirement. That's the atoning sacrifice. Now I'm going to talk about what we've got to do. Here's one of them. God requires that we meet all the conditions for obtaining pardon and mercy before judgment day. Number three. I already mentioned number one, and that was number two. Now here's number three. God requires that we confess our sins to him and to those we have wronged. We must acknowledge our guilt and make no excuses for our sins. We've got to condemn ourselves when we know we've done wrong. And we all, I know I have plenty to condemn myself of for how I've lived in my past. So we all need to do that. So confess to God, not to a priest. 
or not to a, a man who doesn't know about your sin or a woman or anybody. Don't confess to people that don't know about your sin. You confess to those who know about it. If only you know about your sin, well, confess it to God and only to God. If, if you sin and other people know about it, then confess it to them too. But there's no need to go to a third party or to a religious leader. Number four, God requires that we repent, turn away from all known sins, purpose never to repeat them, and aim from then on to discover and do God's will in all matters. That word repent is so important and it's missing from a lot of uh, Bible preaching today. That word repent is found everywhere in the Bible, but in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. See, blotting out of sins, that's called mercy. Another place is in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Do you know repentance is a command? It is a duty. But you only repent of sin. Don't repent of your good deeds. That would be wrong too. That would be wrong to repent of your good deeds. Don't repent of your honest dealings. Only repent of your dishonest dealings. And that word repent, it means a change of heart, a change of purpose, a change of mind. In other words, to repent means you intend never to repeat it. That's, the, that's what repentance really involves. And that is absolutely essential in order to obtain forgiveness and God's mercy. If God would forgive somebody that's not repentant, then that would, God make, that, that would make God a party or uh, uh, an associate in our sins. He would be an accomplice with us if he would forgive us while we're sinning. God does not forgive any of us while we commit sin. Because here we are, we're rebelling against God, shaking our fists at God, and yet at the same time expect God to forgive us? No way. We have to repent. And of course, the concept there is also humility. And we've got to swallow our pride and admit our wrong. Well, number five, God requires that we make restitution as much as we are able to and have opportunity to. That's important. If you stole something, you need to return it and make restitution. Make it right. And uh, in anything, we've, if we've wronged somebody, we, we should make it up to them. If you by accident uh, damage somebody's property, you should do what you can, do what you have opportunity to, to, to make it up to him and to, to, um, to repay as much as you're, you're able to. Number six, God requires that we without murmuring, accept and make good use of our punishments for our offenses com committed against our proper authorities at home, at work, or anywhere else. How many times do people get punished by dad or mom or, by their, or a wife gets uh, disciplined by her husband and they have an attitude? Well, that's not right. That's not repentance. We must accept the punishments we receive from our legitimate authorities, whether they're at home, at work, or anywhere else. And uh, we should accept it without murmuring also. And number seven, God requires that we believe in his son 
who died for us and rose again. And not only that we believe him, but we believe him to the point that from now on we will obey him. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says this, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Do you want eternal salvation? Well, you must not only believe on Jesus, you must obey Jesus. And this is not salvation by works. That's not at all what I'm teaching. This is salvation by Christ through repentance and through faith. A real faith in God and in Christ will produce good works. Faith without works is dead being alone. That's a very important concept. James chapter 2 talks about that. So these are some of the requirements God requires of us in order for us to be, to experience God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's pardon. If we refuse to believe in Christ and submit to his lordship, then we will have no saving benefit from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We will only receive punitive justice from God. All who are in a state of accountability have the natural ability to trust and obey God and to turn from sin. I really mean that statement. We all have the natural ability to trust God, to obey God, turn from him. Turn from, not from him, turn from sin. The reason so few fulfill these conditions does not lie in their inability, but rather in their lack of will. Their lack of will to understand and their lack of will to repent. Many people are not willing to know what they're supposed to do in life. And if they do know what they're supposed to do in life, they're not willing to change their ways to conform to the, to the laws of God. So it's, it's pretty obvious that um, people who are lost in sin and on the way to hell are on that course because they choose it. They're naturally able to take the narrow way that leads to life, but they're not sufficiently motivated or sufficiently informed to take that road. And a lot of times they're not sufficiently informed because they don't care to be informed. So you see how everybody who is going to be in hell or who is in hell is there by their own choice. They cannot blame God for the fact that they're in hell. They can only blame themselves. And that's very important. We are all naturally able. The only problem, the problem is, it's the problem with the will. The thing is, a lot of us, we're not willing to do what God wants. And so we need some motivation. We need some truth presented to our minds. And uh, that's why uh, well, one motivation, there's a lot of ways to be motivated to do right. One, well, the biggest one is love for Christ. But another big one is the fear of Christ and the fear of damnation. That ought to scare us to the point that we, we deal with our sins. So in uh, many, many places in the Bible, it says that God is to be feared. And that means reverenced and, and taken very, very seriously. Do you, so here are some questions for you now. Do you want to pay for your sins by everlasting suffering in hell? Or do you want to take advantage of the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord?
I want to urge you to do the right thing right now before it's too late. Time is short. And in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, it says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And remember, I want to close with these thoughts. Remember what Jesus said. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. In other words, if there's anything missing in your life, well, come to Christ, and he will bring satisfaction like no one else can and nothing else can. God bless you, folks. Have a good day.